Well, good morning again. My sister just came up and said, my grandmother is really doing good. She wanted to thank the whole church for the prayers. Amen. Beautiful. That's great. We serve a God who answers prayer. Isn't that awesome? That gives us a lot of hope. I just want to mention one other thing. You know, we do have our membership, our annual membership meeting on the 13th, which is not this Monday, but the following Monday night. If you're a member or you are interested in how our church operates, Here's the bonus. If you come to the meeting, there's free cinnamon buns. Oh my goodness. It's not, we're bribing you to get here, but uh, there'll be refreshments like cinnamon buns and coffee or tea. And uh, if you're just going to watch us on stream, you cannot vote. So I think it's better to come. You get to be, if you're a member, you get to vote. If you're not a member, think about becoming one. And I just did a membership workshop yesterday with 16 people there. It was a lot of fun. Gives us a little idea of what goes on behind the scenes that make our church family work so well. And we're so grateful for all of you. Well, let's pray this morning. Lord, we just thank you as we gather in your wonderful name that you're going to speak into our heart of hearts. And Father, I know that uh, even as we're listening to your word, Father, it says faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. And so I pray that a tremendous level of faith would arise in our hearts, that we'd hear the voice of the Father speaking into our individual lives, and that we would walk away here encountering you and growing in our understanding, getting to know you better, and understanding your ways, Father, which are far higher than our ways. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. Amen. So, I've entitled the sermon, To Be or Not to Be Married. Okay. Anyways, uh, how many recognize that marriage uh, is under attack today? Some people think it's obsolete. And yet, others believe it's the very foundation on which a healthy society can function. Gary Thomas uh, wrote a number of books, Sacred Parenting. We're actually doing that as a course right now for parents. But he wrote a book called Sacred Marriage. Gary actually came to our church. We had him come and do a marriage seminar years ago, and he spoke at our conference, that which we hosted and read to here. In his book, Sacred Marriage, he talks a little bit about the story of Abraham Lincoln. For those of you that may not be familiar, he was the 16th president of the United States and actually led that nation during the Civil War in the U.S. Uh, he actually married... A very uh, vivacious personality, Mary Todd, hardly the kind of person you would enjoy a quiet evening with. She was, in fact, a person of intense impulses, tremendous temper, though ironically, this is what drew him to her. Uh, later on, uh, as, a, as a president, she went through many challenging moments. They even lost a child while they were serving in the White House. Can you imagine how difficult that was? When a salesperson actually called on the White House, can you imagine today a salesperson calling on the White House? But back in 1861 to 65, uh, that could happen. Uh, he was treated to one of Mary's fervid verbal assaults. He immediately marched up to the Oval Office to have a word with the president. He was complaining to President Lincoln about how the First Lady had treated him. You know, Lincoln is a very interesting person. If you've read anything about him, he uses humor to an amazing degree. He finally said to him, after listening very calmly to this gentleman, he said, well, you could endure for 15 minutes what I've endured for 15 years. <laughs> Shortly before Lincoln left for Gettysburg, his son Todd fell ill. This really sent Mary into a high degree of 
hysteria. She was so upset because, you know, they had just lost their son uh, in, in actually served while serving in the White House a few years before. And with all the distractions in Lincoln's mind, he was now headed to Gettysburg. If you know anything about the Civil War, it's probably one of the bloodiest conflicts. Uh, there was a huge carnage of life. He was going to speak to uh, the people at this battlefield, scri scribbling down on a little piece of paper as he's traveling to Gettysburg. Uh, and so in that moment, in this highly emotional moment, Lincoln could be forgiven for delivering his words with less than powerful rhetoric. The applause was scattered, restrained, so much so that Lincoln believed he had failed miserably. I didn't tell you the speaker before him spoke for two hours. The newspaper printed Lincoln's words called the Gettysburg Address, probably one of the most famous uh, expressions of communication in the United States history. It's actually, when you go to the Lincoln Memorial, you see his whole address right there. It's very limited, very powerful. Gary Thomas points out, he shone brightest when his personal life was darkest. The connection one can make between Lincoln's marriage, which was at times stormy and challenging, and his mission as a president during a civil conflict is not difficult to see the connected points. As a matter of fact, it's easy to see how a man who might quit a difficult marriage would not have the character to hold together a crumbling nation. It said a lot about his character. Timothy Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, points out that historically, marriages were deemed both good and desirable. Studies continue to support the premise, but many high school students now, they've done studies, show a negative attitude towards marriage. He raised the question, so where did this pessimism come from, and why is it so out of touch with reality? Well, paradoxically, it may be that the pessimism comes from a new kind of unrealistic idealism about marriage, born of a significant shift in the culture's understanding of the purpose of marriage. Now, legal, uh, legal scholar John Witt Jr. says that this ideal of marriage as a permanent contractual union designed for the sake of mutual love, procreation, and protection is slowly giving way to a new reality of marriage as a terminal sexual contract designed for the gratification of the individual parties. He goes on to say, formally, it was a solemn bond designed to help each party subordinate individual impulses in interest and favor of the relationship. In other words, in the past, people understood marriage to be about the other person and not about themselves. How many know our society has really shifted in a hurry? We don't think this way anymore. We've moved away from that. As a matter of fact, given by God, not merely to Christians, but to benefit, benefit the entirety of humanity. So marriage was actually an institution that you know, people best thrived in, especially the children. In this view, uh, he goes on to say, marriage created character by bringing male and female into a binding partnership. In particular, lifelong marriage was seen as creating the only kind of social stability in which children could grow and thrive. Now, I just wanna, I'm gonna come back to this, but how many recognize that God is the one who created a male and female? And I'll just say this, there are only two genders. I know some people are confused today, but I, don't, I, I think God's not confused, and he's explaining to us this is how he sees it. And so we have to either decide that we're gonna embrace God's viewpoint on this, are the new cultural realities. 
Older cultures actually taught their members to find meaning and duty by embracing their assigned social roles and carrying them out faithfully. So we've lost the sense of duty anymore. It's not, that's not what life's about. We don't think this way. It's about what am I getting out of this? The earlier generations thought about what could I put into this? It's a totally opposite way of thinking about life. Instead of finding meaning through self-denial, through giving up one's freedoms and binding oneself to the duties of marriage and family, marriage was redefined as finding emotional and sexual fulfillment and self-actualization. That's where we've gone to as a culture today. In this view, married persons marry for themselves, not to fulfill responsibilities to God or to society. So what Witt is basically saying is our culture has shifted Big time. We've moved away from what was considered responsible behavior to now, what am I getting out of this? That's how we think today. Everybody's going, what am I going to receive from this experience? Yet some of the greatest things in life are nourished in times of greatest testings. As a matter of fact, struggle, suffering, sorrow often breed wisdom, understanding, patience, and growth. How many say that's true? If you look back in your journey, if you're a Christian, you've walked with God for a number of years, how many can look back, and I can do this in hindsight, look back and say probably some of the most difficult things that I've gone through probably did more to help me grow up and develop a stronger person, personhood, than did the easy times in my life. Anybody relate to that? It was the challenges the difficulties, the pain. That's what helps you develop as a person. We don't want to, you know, nobody says, I, I want to, ex- I'm signing up to experience struggle, suffering, and sorrow. How many go, yeah, I'm taking that course in life. Signing up for that. No, we don't sign up for that stuff. But it comes our way and God's doing, allowing it. Why is he doing that? Because he wants us to become like himself. He wants us to mature. He wants us to grow up. And, you know, if you're a parent, you always want your children to do well. You always want them to grow up. You want them to move from dependency to independency to interdependency. Notice I didn't stop at independence. Interdependency. That's the level of maturity. You want people maturing and developing. Struggle in human relationships, I believe, transcend time. People have always struggled in relationships. This is nothing new, folks. You know, that's the story of the human family. I could take you to the first family, Adam and Eve. They had a little problem in the garden, and guess what? They're blaming everybody, right? There's only three people there, God, you know, Adam and Eve, and the serpent. So what has happened? You know, Adam says, you know, it's the, it's the woman you gave me. Notice who got blamed, God and Eve. And she blamed the serpent. The serpent didn't know who else to blame, right? I'm just pointing it out. It's, it's just interesting. As, as human beings, we always find a scapegoat. We always find someone to say, it's not my problem. And the problem with that is nothing gets resolved. Nothing changes because we need to address things in our own soul. So people have always struggled in their interactions with each other. But it's how we address the issues that define who we are as people. So here's what I'm going to say to you you're going to always have struggles and problems. Well, that's bad news, pastor. I didn't want to come here to hear that. Well, Jesus said it. In the world, you'll have trouble. But then he said something very fascinating. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. You see, when you and I put our trust in Jesus, he can help us walk through the challenging moments in our life and bring us out the other end so we actually develop and grow as a person through that experience. Well, we're going to take a look here today 
at a very interesting text of scripture. And I'm always not surprised, but it's amazing how strong Jesus really was, the moral courage he exhibited, how he didn't worry about uh, the crowds and what they really thought. He said what the Father wanted him to say, right? And people either followed or they didn't. Some people got offended. Some people walked out. It's true. Jesus even turned to the 12 and said, are you guys leaving too? And they said, no, you have the words of eternal life. We're hanging with you, Jesus. We're gonna stick with you. I think that's powerful. But let's take a look at a certain element in the life of Jesus. He's passing through uh, a certain area in in the region of Judea. And we find Pharisees, they're trying to entrap Jesus. That's normally what they wanna do. They're trying to cause Jesus problems. And we pick up the story in Matthew chapter 19 and verse three. We're gonna look at this first 12 verses there. Verse three, I'm picking up here. Some Pharisees came to test him. And they said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now you have to understand that they're not saying, could a man divorce his wife? Moses had already written that that was allowed. They were basically trying to figure out what was the grounds upon which they could divorce their wives. Now, why was this framed this way by Matthew? They they came to test him. Well, verse one tells us, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee, he went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Oh, I forgot to tell you, this is now Herod Antipas' area where he's ruling, because there's, you know, Herod the Great had died, and they divided the rule between three of his sons. Well, this is the one son that took the other son's wife. And so this is Herod who actually beheaded John the Baptist. Remember that little story, because John was saying what you did was not morally and legally right. And uh, it cost him his life. So when Jesus kind of strolls into that region, these Pharisees ask that question. What are they hoping is gonna happen? Jesus is gonna say something and get him in trouble with Herod. See what he's doing. Well, if it doesn't happen with Herod, Jesus maybe will you know, have a different viewpoint, then he'll alienate the crowds of people that are following him. So he's being baited. He's being you know, set up. It's called entrapment. And so Jesus recognized what's going on here. And so now he takes this opportunity to actually explain what God's intention was with marriage, what went wrong, and also he's giving us a third option called not being married. And we're gonna look at these three things. I wanna look at three insights pertaining to be or not to be married. And the first one, what was God's intention regarding marriage? What did that look like? And so Jesus now answers the question. They're talking about, you know, what's the reason? What's the grounds upon which you can get a divorce? And Jesus answers. He says, haven't you read that at the beginning he created them what? Male and female. Two genders. Everybody got it? I have to say that today. Never used to have to, but we have to now. Number five. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. I'll explain what that means. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So the question posed by the Pharisees was simply, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? So there was a debate going on in Jesus' time, two different rabbinical schools, one was arguing, listen, 
you know, you can't leave your wife unless it's very serious, like infidelity. That was the one school. The other school was like, as we're going to see from, uh, in a bit from Moses, the question of what, what grounds, okay? Some, some, some of them said, well, if she burns the toast too many times, that she's out. You know, it was just like it was really for any frivolous reason, basically. So Jesus is trying to respond to this. Leon Morris t- said this, it was accepted throughout Judaism that a man had a right to divorce his wife, and though a woman, though a woman had no, right, no such right to divorce her husband. This is the way it was. Very discriminatory. We can see that. In some circumstances, she could petition the court, and the court might direct her husband to divorce her, but even then, the actual divorcing was actually done by the husband. So in Mark's gospel, we have this statement regarding this address by Jesus, same one on marriage and divorce, but he says something a little differently. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Now, why is Matthew and Mark Related, stated a little differently. Well, first of all, we need to understand something. Matthew and Mark, these gospels were written after Jesus was crucified. They're probably written 30 years afterwards. Matthew's gospel is targeting a certain audience. They're Jewish in background. If you'll notice all the times Matthew will say things like, and, it, and Jesus did this to fulfill scripture. And Jesus did that to fulfill scripture. He's targeting an audience that knows the word of God. They're Jewish. Mark, on the other hand, is targeting a totally different audience. He's targeting a Gentile audience. He's targeting people that have a Greek background and a Roman background, and their understanding of marriage and divorce is far different than the Jews' understanding. It's far more liberal. Women are divorcing their husbands in this other background. And so Mark brings out a different idea. Now, what we need to understand about the Jewish people at that time was that they basically, uh, that, that divorce was not that prevalent in the Jewish society. And a certain writer by the name of Ab- Israel Abrahams writes in his book, Studies in Pharisaicalism in the Gospel, says, most Jews married young and Jewish sentiment was strongly opposed to the divorce of the wife of a man's youth. Now, why would that be? Well, probably because a lot of them knew the scriptures and they knew Proverbs and it says, love the wife of your youth. There was a very strong feeling. As a matter of fact, the written tradition of the Talmud, some of their, their commentary on the scriptures said this, it read, if a man divorces his first wife, even the altar sheds tears. So we get the sense here that there, it was frowned upon in that particular culture. It, it, it did happen. We're not saying it never happened. But here we're going to get Jesus' viewpoint on the biblical understanding of marriage. So Jesus is explaining, this is what God's intention was. In the beginning, it says that God created them male and female. So God created gender. It was God that related the reason for a man to leave his primary relationship with his family of origin and be united to his wife. Marriage here is defined as a special union between a man and a woman where they become one flesh. This is God's intention. Now how many know, uh, and this is true in all of our lives, how many here, you and I have not hit God's ideal? Anybody here have missed exactly what God intended ever in your life? Every hand should be up. 
You're saying why? Because any, every time we sin, we're missing God's ideal. Okay? So we're all guilty. So before we start throwing stones at people, we need to understand a few things. God says, this is my ideal, and all of us live below it. You know, all have sinned and come short of God's glory. This is God's intention. This is God's perfect design. But you and I, we do our own thing. We mess it up. And let's face it, you know, marriage is a very difficult situation because it's not just one person involved, it's two people. How many know that makes it a little more complicated? Because one person could be trying to do the right thing and the other person says, I'm checking out. It takes two people to make a marriage work. It's true. Come on, let's be honest. It, it takes two people. I figured this out. I've been a pastor for over four decades. You know, some people have been in my office crying. They didn't want this relationship to end. The other person just disappears on them. You know? Heartbreaking. So I know that it takes two people to make a marriage work. That's, that's reality. Now, The man and the woman, it says, are joined together. That word, joined, you know, it's the idea of being glued. They're, they're, they're locked in. They're, they're together. And uh, it can also speak of a relationship. It's not just marriage, but it's, it's so tightly bound together in a sense that you're becoming in close association with this person. You have a new union with them. And, you know, this word that's used for join there is also used for when we're joined to the Lord. You and I are in union with God. There's a relationship, a close association. Or it could be used to speak of our relationship in the family of God, that we're joined to the body of Christ. We're joined in relationship to each other. It's used in that way as well. But there's something unique about marriage. This is a new union that takes precedent even over their family of origin. It transcends it. It goes beyond it. You're, it says a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The primary union now is this fundamental one, the husband and the wife. A lot of marriage problems happen because they haven't let go of the past. They're still too bound up in the old union. You have to, in a sense, release Sometimes parents won't release their kids or sometimes the kids won't release the parents. I know, but it says they leave them and they cleave to this person. That can release a lot of, eliminate a lot of marital problems. You know, it, there's been problems in this area. Believe me, sometimes people have to let go there. Now, what does it mean to become one flesh? It's an interesting word, sarks in the Greek. Well, sometimes, you know, when you're reading this word and some translations when Paul is using the word flesh, he's, he means the carnal nature, the sin-filled nature. That's not the meaning here. This is actually being quoted from the Old Testament. It just means the person is, they're, they're, they're one flesh. It's speaking of a person's flesh, like our bodies. We have flesh, right? And so uh, it's speaking of this special union. In marriage, the two now become related and now are considered one. There's a unique unity of relationship between the two. By speaking to the issue in this way, Jesus was pointing out that the current debate in his hour was losing sight of God's intention. Do you think we ever lose sight of God's intentions in our lives? How many think we probably do that once in a while? You know, we get caught up with other things. We get caught up in the current debates, you know. I remember when I was first in Bible college, a big deal, divorce. That was a big issue. That was a long time ago, but I mean, there was a huge discussion. 
And there was all kinds of ideas, you know, floating around. And, you know, today we, we just take it in stride. It's no big thing anymore, right? We've just accepted it. But, you know, go back. When I was in school 40 plus years ago, that was the big issue. I'm just telling you. We have other bigger issues now. We've just kind of continued down the road. We've got other challenges now. Let me move on here. Uh, the second insight that pertains to be or not to be married is the idea that, you know, even though God has this great intention, how many know we rarely hit the intention? Sometimes we do, but we don't always. And so there's an indifference that's created that knocks out God's intention. I want to look at that indifference. Because I, I use that word intentionally. I think we live in this imperfect world. Sin affects us. It mars our lives. It affects our hearts in such a way that God's intentions and our ideals are often ignored. And then what happens is we sin. Now, what is sin? Sin is actually the hardening of our heart. Did you know that? Our hearts get hard. I've noticed something. You know, you, you know how close you are to God is when you know, you're tender. You're open to correction. You're not easily offended. You, you, don't take, you don't just write things off. You're just open to God. You're moldable, right? But after a while, sometimes we, just, we get hardened, we get calloused, we, we, we start protecting ourselves, and especially when we get into relationships. You know, we, we hurt each other. Isn't that true? How many know we hurt each other? And so what do we do when someone hurts us, you know, well, we can say we're sorry, and that's okay, but if somebody keeps saying they're sorry over and over and over again, after a while, you don't believe them. You know, I had somebody tell me that they're sorry. I said, you know, and they said, they can't understand why people are blocking them. I said, I can tell you why, because you can't just say words. We've all heard this, you know. We can start with words, but eventually it has to change our action. That's when people start believing that you're sorry. How many know that's right? That's when you know you've changed. And so I said to this individual, maybe what you need to do is stop saying anything and start doing the right thing. I think you need to repair the damage that's been done by recuperating thing called trust. Because right now nobody trusts you. Because you know all you do is say words. Words mean very little if you don't back it up with right actions. True? So we need to be more consistent. And then what happens in our relationships, uh, they break down because after you get wounded enough times, pretty soon you say, I gotta protect myself. You start building a little wall. So you're building the wall to shield yourself from the pain, but you don't realize you're building yourself in. You can't get out. See, you're protecting yourself, but now you're stuck, you're on the inside, and it's diminishing that relationship. The Pharisees, in asking the question, did not anticipate Jesus' response, and therefore they pointed out that Jesus, that divorce was acceptable. And they said, Moses permitted this. And he, they said, Moses commanded it. Jesus goes, no, he permitted it. He changed the wording there. It says, if a man marries a woman, this is Moses now, who becomes displeasing to him, that's the key word, displeasing to him, because he finds something indecent about her. What's the indecent thing? Burning toast? Well, one group of Pharisee, uh, rabbis were saying, oh, yeah, yeah, she, that's indecent. Shouldn't be burning your husband's toast. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her from his house. So what was this? They're trying to, you know, they were straining at this word, something indecent. Well, Jesus, he just comes right at it. And he, 
Uh, and Jesus says, why then, they said, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus responds that Moses included this concession in the law. He says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. That's why. But it was not this way from the beginning. See, that's not God's intention, but because of sin. That's what sin does. Sin always destroys relationships. That's a good line. You could write that down. I don't even have it in my notes. Sin always destroys relationships. How's that? So whenever I sin or you sin or someone sins against you, it's affecting people in a negative way. Always does. We have to accept that. It's going to do that. That's why we got to repair those things. Do you know what I find interesting in this text? That this chapter 19 follows chapter 18. You know what chapter 18 is all about in Matthew? Forgiveness. The only way we can get past hard hearts is through forgiveness. That's a key idea. No wonder Jesus taught us how to pray. Isn't that interesting that the things that Jesus taught us how to pray, Lord's Prayer, what is it? One of the biggest statements. There's just seven petitions. One of them is, forgive us our sins. Starts there, right? As we forgive those who sin against us. But you know, a lot of times we don't forgive people who sin against us. Therefore, are we being forgiven by God? I think we just better pay attention to this prayer because we're saying, forgive us our sins as we forgive. But if we're not forgiving, are we forgiven? Do we ever think about it like that? I feel like I don't have a choice. I have to forgive because if I don't forgive, I can't receive forgiveness. And I'm a person desperately in need of forgiveness. I don't know about you guys, but I just don't do it right all the time. I need to be forgiven by God. I need to be forgiven by other people. Therefore, I need to practice forgiveness. It's so critical. So, God's original intention. Divorce was a concession because of sin. That's why. What does it mean to be hard-hearted? Well, that Greek word is really interesting. It's an idiom which means to be uncircumcised in heart and ears, pertaining to be obdurate, and obstinate, stubborn, completely unyielding. If you were here last week, I spoke on marriage. What did I, what was the sermon? Mutual submission. But what happens when you and I won't submit, we become stubborn and obstinate, and what we're doing is actually destroying the relationship. That's what we're doing. In other words, it could be translated, uh, Moses gave you permission to divorce your wives because you were so obstinate. You were so hard-hearted. That's strong. In the context, it's illustrated. Now, this is taken from a Greek word study. Notice that second word, how do you say that? Cardia. How many know what cardia is? That's heart. He's saying hard heart. See, I'm just translating in English now. The focus on stubbornness and obstinacy is the unwillingness to be taught or to understand. Got to have a teachable spirit. Got to be open to other people. Got to be open to correction. You got to be open to be corrected. How many don't like being corrected? Ah. But you know what? We need to be open to it, right? I think that's powerful. We need to understand, Lord, I want to be open. I want to be teachable. So, Jesus is saying the problem in our relationships is within ourselves. Our attitudes, 
towards each other. We all understand it when we're hurting. We, I said we protect, we shield the pain out. But the problem is we become indifferent and insensitive. That wall shields others out. And so what do we do? Well, we go back to chapter 18. We have to forgive. Forgiveness is critical, right? It's interesting. You know, Pete, the disciples, how often should we forgive? See, the Jewish person said three times. Peter thought he was being generous. Seven. That's well, good for you, Peter. Jesus, what did Jesus say? 700. No, he said seven, 70 times seven. 490 times, so we're keeping track. Okay, 488, 489, 490, that's it. We're done. 491, you just crossed the line. Is that what that means? No, the number Jesus gives is basically saying we need to forgive unlimited. No limit to our forgiveness. How many here, you probably have sinned more than 490 times in your lifetime? Okay, let's be honest. Aren't you glad Jesus doesn't go, okay, we're counting them now. And there's a whole bunch that you have no idea that you're sinning. We've gone over that line so fast you wouldn't know what hit you. Right? Come on, let's be honest. We need unlimited, unconditional forgiveness. So he's trying to help us understand this is what it takes to have a relationship. Jesus goes on and points out the only real reason, he says, for a person to divorce his wife, he says, is marital unfaithfulness. Only reason. And he said, that's because what happens in that situation is that you're violating the one flesh. You're breaking that down and you've destroyed trust. How many know trust is the essence of marriage? Do you think about it? There's two, I always say it this way, two thoughts, commitment and trust. That's what makes marriage works. And look what happens today in our culture. People want to live together because they don't know if they can trust the person and they're not willing to commit. The two elements that are necessary to make a marriage work. You see, what I'm saying to you and I, when you marry somebody, you never fully know that person. It's the truth. And so you're making a commitment and you're trusting God and you're putting yourself in a trust position with this other person. And when you violate that, it destroys the relationship. So the state of marriage is one Oh, this is, this is interesting. A uh, young woman in the 17th century came to uh, Francis de Sales. He was a spiritual director. And, you know, a lot of people in that age, they thought about, you know, this was uh, thought about going into like being a nun or, you know, living a celibate life. Totally different. They want to be holy. So this young woman's writing to uh, Francis de Sales and, and, and saying, you know, should she get married? Could she still live a holy life if she was married? And he writes back and says, the state of marriage is one that requires more virtue and constancy than any other. It is a perpetual exercise of mortification. You go, what does that mean? You gotta die to yourself. Now, how many know the scriptures actually teach you and I to die to ourselves? You know, one of my favorite scriptures, and I, I quote it to myself, I'm crucified with Christ Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's Galatians 2.20. I'm crucified with Christ. Have you ever had a little conversation with yourself? I go, why is this bothering me? If I am crucified, I would be dead. If you're dead, nothing bothers you. At least that's what I understand. All the dead people, I don't think anything bothers them. 
So if something's bugging you, I always say to myself, why is this bugging me? And I may not be as crucified with Christ as I'd like to be. It's a little self-examination. Why is this bugging me, right? Usually we don't even think about it. We just go, this, this is annoying me and we say something. No, but maybe we have to evaluate why is it bothering you? What is it? You know? Sometimes we're very impatient. Do you think, how many think God's impatient? No, he's very patient. Well, if I'm impatient, I'm unlike God. What's the goal that God has for your life and mine? To make me more like him. So what is he going to work on doing? Creating things in my life that will help me to become more patient. Oh, that's why I'm being annoyed so much. Yeah, he's trying to teach you something. Are we catching on? This is what God's working on. He goes on to say to her, from this thyme plant, in spite of the bitter nature of its juice, you may be able to draw and make the honey of a holy life. To spiritually benefit from marriage, we have to be honest. We have to look at our disappointments, own up to our own ugly attitudes, and confront our selfishness. We also have to get rid, rid ourselves of the notion that the difficulties of marriage can be overcome if we simply pray harder or learn a few simple principles. No, this is a lifetime school of making you like Jesus. It's never going to end. Okay. So, in Moses' day, they had to regulate it because women were taken advantage of. People were kicking them out. They didn't have anywhere to go. If they wanted to get married, they couldn't because they were still married to the first husband. That's why this whole regulation came into to effect. So we're going to move past these quotes here. Some of you are going, hey, what is he saying there? Here's the good news. I actually write a blog every week, and all these notes are in there, okay? Number three, to be or not to be married what about those people that choose, I want to live the single life? I want to make a statement here. I think living the single life is based on gifting. Some people are gifted to be married and some people are gifted to be single. It's interesting, a lot of people get confused. A lot of people that are married want to be single. A lot of people that are single want to be married. Make sure you understand your gift. But Jesus talks about it. It starts out really kind of in a humorous way because the disciples, after listening to what Jesus said about the permanency of marriage, they said to Jesus, hey, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to be married. That was their conclusion. Jesus' response is not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. Now, I don't, you know, some will argue that's what he was saying about marriage. I think it's what he's about to say that this verse applies to. Or it could be a, maybe about both. But it says here, he's gonna tell them, that, you know what, some people need to be single. Some people are called by God to be single. It's a calling, it's a state. Listen to what Paul says to the Corinthians. Now for the matters you wrote about, it's good for a man not to marry. Is that's interesting. In our society, we think it's almost abnormal not to get married. A lot, a lot of times in the Christian church, people are saying, how come you're not married? Well, maybe they're called not to be. It's good for a man not to marry. But since there's so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and every woman her own husband. In other words, you know, it has a little bit to do with your passion, your desire level. You know what? If you can't control yourself, then you should just restrict yourself to one person. Because when you are not married, you don't have the freedom to run around and have sex with anybody. That's, that's, uh, the marriage bed is the only bed that's undefiled. Every other one is sinful. Can you imagine, I actually said this in a college classroom a few years ago. A, 
actually, it was at Red Deer College. It was in a psychology class, and I told this whole group of students that they could not have sex outside of marriage. I did. I said that. You know, they probably thought, whoa. I said a lot of things that got them thinking that day. Yeah. Everyone's looking at me like, really? You see, our culture has so far gotten away from what God's intentions are. And I'll tell you why God did it that way. First of all, it's the safest place for children to grow up is in the marriage institution, number one. Number two, this isn't about you know, sexual expression. This is about commitment and learning to, uh, to, to actually develop meaningful and healthy relationships. No wonder so many young people are broken and they're confused and they're angry and they, you know, they don't even understand what's going on in their lives. You know, we, we, we're just using people. It's not about using people, folks. It's about committing yourself to a person. Jesus goes on to say here, for some are eunuchs. That means these people, are, you know, they don't have sex because they're born that way. Others were made that way by men and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. And the one who can accept this should accept it. There's some people, they're called by God to remain single. Listen, the apostle Paul and Barnabas, they didn't have wives. They, they, they did their ministry fully devoted to God and they were committed to it. As a matter of fact, if you're a Jewish person, you have a problem with somebody being single. Remember what it says in Genesis, it's good for a man not to be alone. How many remember that text? But remember something too, the Jews had an underdeveloped sense of eternity. They thought they were gonna perpetuate their memory through their children. But you and I have a more fuller understanding and revelation that you and I actually are gonna live for eternity with God. This is amazing to me. We have eternal life, folks. We're gonna live forever. Uh, and that's why eventually Isaiah makes this amazing statement in his book. He says, for this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and holds fast to my covenant. Then he says this, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. And I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. He's telling them, if you follow me, even though you're a eunuch, I will remember you. So it's not about getting married then and perpetuating your, your lineage and descendants and that's how you'll be remembered. God says, I will remember you as a single person. Paul writes this. He says, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affair, how he can please the Lord. He said, this is how we should be thinking. See, it's very simple. Our life should be, how can I please God? I would even argue with people today. Your body doesn't even belong to you. It belongs to God if you're a Christian. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. You just don't go do your own thing. You gotta get permission from your master in heaven. How am I gonna use my body? This is a whole different way of thinking. See, we are so far removed from what God designed for us to live like. That's why we're so broken as a culture. He says, but a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world and how he can please his wife. In other words, his interests are divided. When you're married, you have to not only please God, but you gotta please this person you're united with, you're in partnership with. It's not doing your thing. It's not about, I'm gonna remain single so I can do whatever I want to do. No. It says here, an unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. So if you remain single, it's not, I'm remaining single so I can do my own thing. You know, I'm gonna remain single and play by my Game Boy. 
you know, my whatever. I don't know what they're called. I don't play them, so I have no idea. You know what I mean? I'm not gonna sit there for hours, you know, vegging out in front of a TV set, you know, or, you know what I mean? That's not what it's about, guys. It's about pleasing God. It's about giving your life and serving God with all of your being, serving God wholeheartedly. So, let me close. Well, let me say, finish the verse here. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. So there's a dual responsibility. So we started out with Jesus at a point of entrapment. They were trying to ensnare him with a controversial topic. Jesus takes it as a moment to instruct people on God's intention regarding marriage. He basically says, listen, this is a permanent thing while you're living on this planet. You're getting married to one person, that's it. You know, and then what we're hearing from Jesus is that this can only be destroyed by human sinfulness. God's intention, but unfortunately, human sin comes into the equation and it wrecks things. And whenever we choose to do things our way and violate God's will, it creates consequences and pain and sorrow, not only for ourselves, but for all those people around us. It always does. That's the great tragedy. So I'm gonna have a stand as we close the service. I have a minute. But I wanna pray for us this morning, because this is important stuff. But just with every head bowed right now, you say, you know what? I know in my own soul how submitted I am to God or not submitted I am to God. And I can tell you how submitted you are just by the way you're treating your spouse. Just that fast. If you want to know how good of a Christian I really am, go talk to my wife, Patty. She lives with me. She'll tell you what I'm really like. You know what? Anybody can be good on Sunday for a few hours. But 24-7, year after year, that's a new ball game. It comes out. It's true. How submitted are you to God? Well, I can tell you. How submitted are you to your spouse? Are you concerned about what they're concerned about? Is it a team effort? Are you a partner? You know, I said this in the first service. When I was uh, in Bible college, I wanted to go on the, I, I felt called to be a pastor. And you know what, that really narrowed the field for me who I could marry. I'll tell you why. First of all, I couldn't marry a non-Christian. I can't even imagine that. That would be, I would have never been a pastor. I didn't just couldn't find just any girl in the church because most of them, they didn't want to go into the ministry. I had to find someone who felt called of God, that wanted to be in the ministry because that's how I've been in pastorate for over 40 years because I had a partner that was willing to walk me down the same path. But I, you know, there was moments I neglected her for the ministry and I had to ask for forgiveness. I had to repair some things. It's an easy thing to do. Guys, you can get so caught up in your job. Let's be honest here. Get caught up in your hobbies. Come on. And you're neglecting your spouse. It's wrong. It's a sin. It's destroying your marriage. And it's actually affecting you in a negative way. But you know, gals, you can do it too. You can have a family. Pretty soon you're focusing on your kids and you're neglecting your husband. That's a mistake. One day your kids are going to be grown up. You're going to be left with your husband this total stranger. No, it's a partnership. You need to focus in on each other. Walk together. 
So I'm gonna give you an opportunity this morning to say, you know what, Pastor? I feel the Spirit of God speaking in my heart saying, you know what? I am not as submitted as I'd like to be. And I need help. There's areas in my life God wants to change. There's pressure going on in my life. God is dealing with me. We could change our marriage just by making maybe even minor adjustments, submitting to each other, listening to each other, hearing each other, changes the whole equation. Some of you feel like, you know, I've already messed it up, Pastor. I've been through one marriage, two marriages, I don't know. Listen to me really carefully. You can hit the reset button. Say, what's the reset button? Fresh surrender to Jesus. New understanding, yielding to Him. He's a forgiver. Remember I told you that. He's the ultimate forgiver. But you and I got to start doing it the right way. Amen? We got to start changing our way of thinking. That's called repentance. Maybe you're here today and God's speaking to your spirit right now. Maybe you're a single person. You're going, man, I didn't realize that God created me and my body belongs to God and I just can't do what I want. Actually, if I'm a true follower of Jesus, I have to yield my body to Him and serve Him wholeheartedly. That's powerful stuff. It's really powerful stuff. But I'm gonna tell you, when you start eliminating selfishness and sinfulness in your life, you're gonna get free as a bird. You're gonna start realizing that the person who's living this obedient, restricted life is actually the free person, and the one that's doing his own thing is actually broken, unhappy, and miserable. That's what I've discovered. 47 years of observing people, that's what I've discovered since I've walked with Christ. It's real simple, surrender. Absolute surrender to Christ. Submit to each other. Are we hearing this? Is this getting through? How many here now say, you know what, that's me. God's speaking to me right now, just raise your hand. Just raise your hand, just raise your hand. God wants to, God wants to do a work right now. Just raise your hand. Spirit of God speaking to you. You've been stubborn. You're obstinate. You're rebelling. You're doing your own thing. Just raise your hand. Say, okay, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Lord. I'm sorry for what I've done. I ask you to forgive me. I want the reset button. I want to hit it right now. I want God to do a deeper work inside of me. I'm going to say this to you. Even though you're married, don't expect your spouse to meet all your needs. That's impossible. You and I are too needy. We need to go to God. God, I'm so broken. Can you start filling in the broken, wounded places of my soul? God wants to do it. He wants to invade your space today. He wants to get after it with you. He wants to come into your life. He wants to heal the brokenness. He wants to restore things in your soul. He wants to bring newness of life into you. Jesus said, I've come to give you life and that more abundantly. Isn't that beautiful? So beautiful. So Father, we come to you right now. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you just do a powerful work of grace and healing and restoration. I just pray as we lay down our rights and we give ourselves wholeheartedly to you, take us on this journey with you. Help us to follow you wherever you're taking us. And Lord, help us to be forgiving, loving, forbearing, gracious, kind, patient, gentle, help us to become like you. That's our goal. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.